You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Are all clinical trials created equal? How can physicians apply the results of clinical trials to their practices? Joining us to discuss clinical trials, why are they needed, is Dr. Steven Weinstein, clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Allergy and Immunology at the University of California at Irvine College of Medicine. Well, Steve, why are clinical trials important? Why do we need them? Well, certainly we all are using and prescribing medications, and they have to be vetted somewhere, somehow, and to the benefits of each individual as well as the benefits of society. So to do this, there's a general structure that has been established in a variety of levels, both from government as well as from industry, as, as both from ethical considerations, to see which medications can be acceptable and be actually brought to market and to the benefits of our patients. Otherwise, we have unregulation and we really don't have a real scientific way of assessing and understanding which medications would be best for our patients. So for our audience, what are the stages of clinical trials? I think people have maybe heard about, you know, phase three or phase two or four. What are those and what are the differences, Steve? Well, first it comes into uh, basic science. And you have a basic scientist maybe looking at a disease state, let's say asthma, for example, and they're looking at certain cellular infiltrates in the lungs. And they notice that there are certain inflammatory mediators that are present in the lungs. And then they go a little bit further and they say, well, you know, this is pathophysiologically how this mediator actually works. And then they may say, well, let's see how this works by blocking this mediator and doing it in an animal model, for example, or an in vitro model. And it seems that, well, this has some potential in terms of altering asthma. And then there may be some further steps and further steps. And, and finally, it, it's for safety and animals and so on. And then it may be tested in healthy humans. And if it's tested in healthy humans, that's a phase one study. And that's just to see where the medication goes, whether there are any obvious problems with the medications, and not so much in the disease state. If it seems that it's safe in this population, and usually that's a population of young, healthy men, then it's introduced into a population of patients who have asthma and to see whether it makes any difference and what kind of dosing it is. That's usually done in small numbers of patients, you know, less than 100, and to find out which is the best dose to administer may be the best for safety as well as for efficacy. That's how well it works. If that seems to be acceptable, that is working and it's safe, then there's a larger phase three registration study. And the FDA has a mandate to make sure that the medications are obviously safe and effective. And there are a number of studies that have to be established in phase three, which are larger studies, and they're also placebo-controlled. Necessity for placebo is somewhat controversial, actually, Todd. In Europe, placebo studies really aren't used nearly as much as the FDA mandates them to have here in this country. But it shows a very, very obvious difference when there's no drug being administered versus a drug. And if you can see that difference, that's very, very important. So this phase three study, which is pre-registration, and if the safety and efficacy appears to be appropriate, then the FDA will review all, all the data from the entire project with a history of this medication and say whether either more studies need to be done or whether the drug can actually be administered to patients and sold in pharmacies. So what's a phase four trial then? 
After registration and after the drug has been approved, there can be phase four studies that may be looking at other aspects of the medication. For example, they may look at, well, for example, Singular. Singular was approved initially for the lungs. There were some phase three studies looking at efficacy in the nose, and then there was some combination studies in patients who had both diseases, and then there are long-term safety studies which may be looking at for medication over a year, and that would be a phase four study. So the structure of clinical trials, is it necessary for you as the investigator and the participant to be blinded? Well, there's enough bias in our practices anyway. A patient comes into a doctor and says, you know, I've got a sore throat and gets a treatment for it and then walks out and then 10 days later comes back and says, doc, what you gave me was really good. Well, most of the time we know that that's going to be a viral pharyngitis and whatever antibiotic that the patient got, you know, really didn't have anything to do with the drug, but we all think that it did, and so that may influence our behavior the next time we see we somebody with pharyngitis. So having a blinded observer and a blinded subject is actually the gold standard for clinical trials. Anything that's less than that is less than the gold standard. So it takes away most, not all, but most of the bias that an investigator may have or, frankly, that a subject may have. In most of the clinical trials for asthma, the placebo groups get better, and there's a variety of reasons for that, too. But the key thing is having blinding to show that the drug that's being under investigation is actually going to be statistically better than the placebo arm. But it was interesting what you mentioned about Europe not using as many placebo trials. I mean, as you look at structured clinical trials, you know, thinking about asthma and pediatrics and if you've got somebody with asthma and you're going to put them on a longer study with a placebo arm, is that ethically correct? Well, that lends itself to our next discussion, which is the safety of clinical trials. And there are a number of layers of safety, and especially in vulnerable populations. The vulnerable population is the pediatric population. So some special layers of protection must be in place. For example, there's an informed consent. An informed consent is a document that outlines what the drug is, who's doing the study, what's being done during the study, what alternatives there may be, that subjects don't have to be in the study if they don't want to, that they can drop out at any time. Those are standard items in an informed consent. As far as getting a placebo in a subject that may need to be taking medication, we have to be very careful about that. And I think that that's a very, very, very important thing. If you're taking a subject off existing medication, they have to know what the ramifications are. And we are very, very, very careful about that. We will call patients and, if necessary, see them every day during the time that they may be taken off the medication just to make sure that they're not being impaired. And if they are being impaired, we stop their participation in the study right away. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss clinical trials, why are they needed, is Dr. Steven Weinstein, clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Allergy and Immunology at the University of California at Irvine College of Medicine. So we are talking a little bit about safety. How important is the IRB? The IRB is made up, investigation research board, is made up basically of lay people. There may be one physician who can clarify some of the medical terms, but basically it's a lay group of people that review protocols and review informed consents from the aspect of the subject who may be participating uh, in terms of their readability and understandability of the informed consent, and also to make sure that the patients are not going to be having things done to them, which would really put them at significant risk. 
So having an IRB is very, very important. In fact, one of the things with consent volunteers is we circle and we tell them what the IRB is and that if they feel uncomfortable about anything that goes on in the clinical trial, that's the number that they call. They have to have some other mechanism to express their concerns if they have a concerns about a clinical trial, and that's where it is. And the IRB is very important as far as the conduct of a trial because anything that goes on with this clinical trial has to be reported to the IRB so they're informed about what's going on as well. So we've talked about why clinical trials are important, the stages of clinical trials, phases one through four, and even the preclinical, you gave us some explanation of that, and the structure of clinical trials and the blinding of the investigator and the placebo and informed consent IRB. Why would someone participate in this? What's the benefits to the participant? That's really interesting, Todd, because the number one, and there have been some studies looking at that, the number one reason is altruism. And people who participate in the clinical trials, they want to benefit society, benefit people who have the condition, and further science. And I think that's very admirable and and something that's somewhat overlooked most of the time. Now, with that said, there are some personal, aside from benefits to society, there are some individual benefits that the volunteer may have. For example, all the procedures that are done during this clinical trial are at no cost to the volunteer. So if they have lung function tests, multiple lung function tests, if they get screening blood tests, all of that is at no cost. They also get the assessment about their asthma or their allergic rhinitis or whatever is being studied, usually by a specialist that's conversant with the field, and they get patient education. And there's a lot of time that's spent with volunteers explaining what is being done. You know, what do these lung function tests mean? What do the PFLA rates, what do they mean? What about the lab tests? What about symptoms and symptom scores and understanding their asthma? And so many patients will come in and they'll really not understand just how much problems they're having. And once they start writing down their diary cards and writing down their objective assessments, they're realizing that, oh, wow, I'm having a little bit more problems than I had before. I didn't really understand that I, I was putting up with so much. So that's one thing. And then finally, patients do get compensated for their time. And compensation is not coercive. I mean, Todd, if I said to you, I've got this study that I'd like you to participate in, and we're going to give you $5,000 every time you come in, that's coercive. And the IRBs and ethicists will not allow something like that. There's compensation, but it's really compensation for travel expenses and nominally for time. No one's getting rich on doing clinical trials, but it's something to at least pay expenses for these volunteers. I think that's a great explanation, too, because I think I've talked to people and there's some providers who I don't think know how trials, they've never been experienced to clinical trials. And, you know, I've heard comments like, well, you know, all these patients, they're just paid to do this. And so they're going to tell you what you want to hear. Do you think that's true? They can say virtually anything, but the fact is we're asking them very pointed questions. And this is all blinded. And, you know, we don't know what patients are getting, what they're not getting, extraordinarily rarely uh, you know, seeing someone who's not really on board with understanding what the trial is all about. And they're interested in, in getting good data, too. And they want to make sure they, they get it right, too. So I think that this is a collaborative thing and for the benefit of the investigator, the sponsoring organization, uh, and society as a whole. Have you found it difficult to get patients to participate in clinical trials? It's interesting. With word of mouth and people who understand what clinical trials are, not really. There's, just like you mentioned about you know, some of your colleagues that may not understand, you know, some patients will automatically say, well, I don't want to be a guinea pig. And no one's being a guinea pig. 
but they just need to understand what a clinical trial is and how the structure is and what the benefits are. So as far as uh, having participants in clinical trials, in the right clinical trials, it's beneficial for everybody. Well, I think this has been a wonderful review of clinical trials, why we still need them today to really sort through kind of the data that's coming at us, why having them blinded, having the investigator blinded, the participant blinded, why sometimes placebo has to be used has been excellent. So I would like to thank my guest from the University of California at Irvine College of Medicine, Dr. Steve Weinstein. Dr. Weinstein, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. I enjoyed it very much, Dr. Mark. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM160. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.